John chapter 19, we're going to start reading in verse 31. Hot. Mildred said so. Uh-oh. That could be just you. No, I'm just kidding. 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 John 19, starting in verse 31. This is uh, after the, the, uh, uh, the uh, crucifixion, after the trials and the crucifixion. And Jesus, as we ended last week, he had died on the cross. And so we pick up today in verse 31. It says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one yet had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, and both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back. To their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was him. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, 
If you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things uh, to her. Now, I cannot, you know, as we come to today's lesson, and we've gone all the way through John, and we spent uh, a lot of time talking about his trial. Um, we, took, we, we took a lot of time uh, talking about his crucifixion. You know, we can't stress enough how important it is that Jesus not stay in that tomb. You know, everything he did, that if, if he, by the way, he lived, what's the old song? Um, I, I know I'm going to live, why? Because he lives. You know, and that's the truth. It says it over and over again in the Bible. We know we'll live forever because he lived forever. If he hadn't come out of that tomb, I don't know what would have happened. But the fact is, we have life because, because he has life. And so, um, and it, it's, 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 the resurrection itself is just an incredibly, and we talk a lot about the cross as well we should because our salvation is in the atonement or the payment that Jesus made for our sin on the cross. But the resurrection is critically important. In fact, it's so important. Now think about this. The resurrection is so important that if you don't believe in it, you cannot be saved. You can believe all this other stuff about Jesus, but if you don't believe in the resurrection, you cannot be saved. Romans 10.9, Paul says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you've got to do one other thing, and what, what does it say? Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. I mean, that, that's one thing this morning that you have to ask yourself. Do I really believe deep in my heart that Jesus Christ got up and walked out of that tomb and He's alive today? That's how important the resurrection is. If you don't believe in it, you cannot be saved. You have to believe in the resurrection. You have to. And, so, and, and by the way, a lot of people can't go there. They just can't. I believe Jesus was a good man. I believe Jesus was a prophet. I believe Jesus was all these things. But a lot of people don't believe he was the God man. That he could just get up and walk out of a uh, walk out of a, a tomb. It is this. It is the resurrection that gives us hope and gives us assurance that uh, that by the way the tomb won't be the end for us, right? Because he walked out, we'll walk out one day. Uh, Romans 10.9, Paul says it this way. It's not Romans 10.9. i got to quit doing this. Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most pitiable. In other words, he says, if your life, if, if your Christianity is all about this life and not the afterlife, you're to be pitied. Paul said that it, just in this life, that's not enough. We want what's coming next, don't we? Um, John 14, 19, Jesus said this, After a little while, the world will see, no longer see me, but you'll see me because I live, what? You'll live. Because I walk out of the tomb, one day you'll walk out of the tomb. I mean, so the resurrection is just, is just huge for us um, as, as Christians. Because it, 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 and it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that He walked out of that tomb, it rescues us from the fear of death. I mean, you think about it. He's removed death's sting. He's conquered its terror. He's, he's caused us to look at death not as a disaster, 
not as a taking away, but a, as a as a friend that ushers us into the to the next life with Him. Yes, death is death is scary. It's scary because of the unknown, but the unknown for us has been taken away. You know, I hear so many people say, "Well, I, we just don't really know what's on the other side," or "We don't really know." There's nothing out there. And then Jesus says, He proved that there's life after death. And He said, because I live, you will live. And He did all that by dying and then rising from the dead. And if there's any doubt that Jesus is who He says He was, the resurrection answers that question. Now this this is a marvelous passage of Scripture. Um, It's very historical. But at the end of the day, it opens up for us the clearest possible testimony there could be that Jesus is in fact deity, that He is God, that He wasn't just a man. And it also proves to us that He has the power of life in Himself, the same life that He has given uh, to, to us. Now, over the last three weeks, we've covered some pretty ugly material. If you were here for the, for the two weeks that we covered the trial of Jesus, and if you were here last week when we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus... It was pretty, pretty ugly, and it's ugly in the sense how how human beings could treat the God that came to uh, to save them and torture him and murder him. But today, that's all behind us, and today we get to read about the most important event uh, to ever occur on the planet, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's go back to our verses, and we're just going to walk through and and explain a few things as we go through them that that people might not understand. So let's look first at verse 31. It says this, Since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate Pilate, that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So this is all happening on what day of the week? Wednesday. No. What day? What day? Friday. Friday. It's all happened on Friday. The Sabbath is a Saturday for the Jews. I can say it's a special Sabbath. It's a feast day. It doesn't matter. It's still a Sabbath. It's still a Sabbath. The Sabbath is a Sabbath. It's like for us, uh, we might say Easter is a special Sabbath for us, but it's still on a Sunday. So this is still happening on a. This is still a Friday. This is still a Saturday. And by the way, Mary, we know that because Mary will come to the tomb on the. First day of the week, which is a Sunday. Sunday, which is the third day that he rises, which means he was in the grave on Friday, he's in the grave on Saturday, he rises on Sunday, the first day of the week. So this is all happening on a Friday. If you'll remember, Jesus was crucified about somewhere around 12 o'clock. Um, this is happening about 3 o'clock or so, I believe. Yeah, this should be happening around 3 o'clock in the afternoon that this is all uh, happening. So. It says, since it was a day of preparation, so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, which is the following day, the Jews came and asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the day of preparation is the day before the Sabbath. So Jews, you know, they know the next day is the Sabbath, so the day before is called the day of preparation, which is the Friday. So this is where you get yourself ready. You know, if you got any issues or problems or you got any in-laws staying at your house and you want to get them out or whatever, you get everything prepped and ready before the, uh, uh, the Sabbath comes. Now this particular Sabbath is the Passover, right? So this is what makes it a high day or a especially holy day. 
You remember back in Exodus, right? Everybody knows what the Passover is when um, uh, uh, God's Moses is, is comes to Pharaoh and he sends the plague of the frogs and the uh, the the blood in the water and the locust and 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 all of that stuff. He finally gets to the last one, which is he tells them all your firstborn in the land is going to die, all the firstborn cows, all the firstborn goats, all the firstborn sheep, and all the firstborn human beings. And he tells the Jews, he says, sacrifice a lamb and put the blood over the lintel of your door and the angel of death will what? Pass over the house and it won't touch you. Okay, so when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. So this is, they set, they've been celebrating this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so this day is the Passover. So, by the way, Jerusalem on the Passover is full. Because everybody's coming to sacrifice. People from all the countries are coming. This place is absolutely uh, packed. And so it's a very special day the next day, and they called it a high day. In other words, it's an especially holy Sabbath. And so it was very sacred. So the Jews, with all these people coming into town, and there was other reasons, by the way, they did not want them staying on the cross. Now, Here's read, probably this is the reason why. In uh, Deuteronomy 21, it says this, verses 22 to 23. It says, this is all in the Old Testament law, it says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hangman is cursed by God. And what's the next part? You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So there was something, if, if, when, you, uh, when they executed a man, hung him on a tree, you'd hunt, you took him down, right? You did not let him stay around uh, for, the, uh, for the next day, or that would defile the land, okay? Everybody see that? So that might be one of the reasons that they wanted him down. Uh, the other thing could have been you had all these people coming in for Passover, maybe they just didn't want... You know, it, it, they want their town to look good. I, we don't know what their reasoning was, but the fact is, is because the next day was a Sabbath, they wanted him and the other men down um, off of the tree. Now, this is, of course, and we've said it before, this is hypocrisy and legalism at its very um, worst, isn't it? I mean, here's, they, they've railroaded. Remember, if you go back to the trial, they broke all their own laws. They had an illegal trial. They railroaded a perfectly innocent man, and they killed him, right? I mean, they did all that. They have denied God and blasphemed him by killing his son, yet they are scrupulous about maintaining the outward form of their religion, aren't they? They want to make sure on the outside everything looks good. Everybody says, oh, everything's in, you know, all my I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. It, again, it's exactly what Jesus said about him. He said... You look good on the outside. On the outside, you look like a painted tomb. But on the inside, you're just dead. You're absolutely dead. And, and so once again, they, they evidence this. So the Jews asked Pilate to have the soldiers go and break the legs of the men on the cross. Now remember we talked about this uh, last week, that when they would crucify, when they crucified Jesus and, and men like him, they would crucify him with their legs at a 45-degree angle. Remember that? And remember to, to breathe, you had to put, the man would have to push themselves up, take a breath, and then they'd get tired and they'd sag back down. Then they'd have to push themselves up, take a breath, and they'd sag back down. And eventually that, you know, so if you wanted to kill them quicker, 
you would come and they'd take a big mallet, and it wasn't pretty, and they'd take this big mallet and they would just crush their shin bones and just break them. And of course, then they could no longer push up and they would die, they would suffocate very quickly. And so that's what the Jews are saying. Will you go break their legs so they'll, they'll die and we can get them down off the cross before it gets dark. By the way, keep in mind, Sabbath starts at sundown, not at midnight, like our calendar. We think the next day starts at midnight. For them, Sabbath is 6 p.m. It starts at sundown. So they're saying, I, we need them dead and off the cross in the next two or three hours. Okay? So they, they, so they go to Pilate and say, can you, can you break their legs? So the, again, this was to help... Uh, uh, you know, make their push their death along and lead to their death very quickly. Let's look at verses 32 to 34. So the soldiers came, and remember Jesus is crucified with two men, one on either side of him. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there flowed out or came out blood and water. So they come over, they break the legs of the first one, they break the legs of the second one, um, which is a horrific thing. I mean, you know, man, this, this is a, I don't, any size society that could do that. It's just, it's just horrific. Um, but they come to Jesus, and of course Jesus is, is already dead, because last week he, he gave up the, the spirit, or he, he, he let himself die. Um, but one of the soldiers comes along, and, the, and they see that he's already dead, and one of pierces his side with a spear. Now, at this point in the story, John interjects something a little bit uh, odd. Um, he says this. He says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. Now, why would John say that? They, they come to Jesus. Let's go back and read that verse. And it says, the soldiers, what did the soldiers see about Jesus? He's already dead. And so one of them, and we'll talk about this in a second, one of them sticks a spear in his side. So they got these spears, these javelin-looking things, and one of them jams it up in his side. And so it would have probably, more than likely, they were coming up into his heart cavity. They probably did it on the left side and would have come up into his heart cavity. Um, and then there came out blood and water, and we'll talk about that in a second. But at this point in the story, instead of just going on, John says, hey, I saw it with my own eyes, and I'm telling you the truth. Now, why would he stop and say that? Why do you think he would do that right there? Hey, I'm telling you the truth. I was there. I was an eyewitness. I saw it with my own two eyes. Anybody? Why do you think? So you know that he was actually dead and broke his hand. Okay. That, okay. I think Scooter's exactly right. There is going to, later on, <clears throat> this body's going to disappear, and there's going to be a lot of rumors about him. And one of the rumors that's going to come up is that. He wasn't really dead. He looked dead. He was kind of in a coma. But when they put him in the tomb, the, the coolness of the tomb revived him, and somehow or another he got out. But that's what they're going to say is that he wasn't, he wasn't dead. Um, again, remember, by the time John writes his gospel, several years have passed, right? This isn't a day or two later, but John is an older man when he actually writes this gospel. So by the time he writes it, there's already people saying, well, that Jesus, he wasn't really dead. He was just in some kind of coma, and, uh, uh, and he was revived by the spices they wrapped him in. He was revived by the coolness 
of the tomb. But John wants us to know that he was there and he saw it with his own two eyes and along with the Roman soldiers, he can confirm that yes, Jesus was really and truly dead. He isn't passing along something he heard. He's letting you know, I I was standing right there at the foot of the cross and I saw him. And he was absolutely, uh, absolutely dead. Now, a lot of these things had to happen the way they did, of course, to fulfill Scripture. Look at verse 36. John says, These things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Um, again, there, he's quoting Psalms 34.20, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus. And it says this, He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Um, now, keep in mind also that the Roman soldiers who came by with these mallets to smash the legs of their victims, they crucified people pretty much every day. Okay, This was their job. That's what they did. They were experts at it. Um, it, it was their stock and trade. It was their... I mean, can you imagine how long would they... They had this job, and can you imagine the trouble that they would get into if they took somebody off the cross before they were dead? You wouldn't be doing that job very longer, right? You'd be—they—they'd have you consigned to some outpost that you didn't want to—you didn't want to go to. Um, so one of the soldiers, probably to make absolutely sure that he was dead, took the spear and thrust it up into his heart. Okay, that's more than likely what they were doing. Yes, he's dead. Let's make absolutely sure. Here's a spear in the—here's uh, a spear in his heart. Now, again. Why would they do that? Well, uh, a couple things. One explanation is that they were doing it to make sure that he was dead. Uh, They knew, by the way, they had seen this a lot. Crucifixion, because of what happens in crucifixion, what happens, fluid gets built up around your heart and fluid gets built up around your lungs. It's got some some physiological thing. Your body uh, in your blood releases this fluid into your tissues and it, and it kind of congregates around your heart and around your lungs. And, and it just, it, it just he, it, it, it hastens, the, cruci- the crucifixion hastens the suffocation and, and all of that. So one of the things that they could also do by thrusting that spear in there, if water came out, they knew the crucifixion had done its job. Because normally water wouldn't come out, just blood. So when water flows out, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, the crucifixion had done its, uh, done its job. Um, and, again, and again, a thrust to the heart would make 100% sure that death had come. Now, again, these soldiers, by the way, they know nothing about Old Testament. You know, some of the things you read is almost comical how when you talk about... Because when, when Jesus died on the cross, there are, there are prophecies. I mean, literally 500 years, 600 years, 1,000 years before he was born that come true, that, that, are, that come true or verified to the T. And you'll hear people say, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus was on the cross and he saw that bucket of vinegar and he said, hey, I'm thirsty because he knew. But what was the vinegar doing there? Who brought the vinegar? Did the soldiers know? Well, we need to have some vinegar there to make sure that this prophecy comes true. Um, you, know, you, don't say, you know, I mean, it was just too, you can't make all these prophecies come true uh, I mean, it's just it's, it's comical to even think that, that that there was some kind of conspiracy to make all this um, make all this happen. So the soldiers have no idea about the Bible. They have no idea about the Old Testament. But yet, everything they do fulfills prophecy. For example, John nineteen thirty seven, 
John says again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. They are fulfilling Zechariah 12.10. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now remember we said last week that very few of the victims of crucifixions were ever buried. Remember that? Um, In fact, the crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low. If you were a Roman citizen, they would never crucify you, no matter what you did. You could kill 100 people, and they wouldn't hang you on a cross. That was was reserved for to kill the lowest of the low. And remember we said last week it was designed to humiliate and degrade the victim. And so they would never do that. So, in fact, you were considered so low that when they took you off the cross, they would just throw you on a garbage heap and let the dogs eat you. They very seldom were victims of crucifixion every buried. But in order for Jesus to fulfill Scripture, He had to be buried in a rich man's grave. Isaiah 53.9 says this, His grave was assigned with the wicked man, yet He was with a rich man in His death, because He had done no violence, nor there was any deceit in His uh, mouth. So let's look at verses 38 through 39. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now this is really, uh, this gets to be really interesting. We're introduced here to two men. One is called Joseph of Arimathea. Now, he's mentioned in all four Gospels, and Matthew and Luke tell us a little bit more about him. Number one, we know he was rich. Okay, that's one thing we know. We also know that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And then they also tell us, I think Matthew tells us, he was a good man and a righteous man, but he's a coward. Okay, notice what it said. He is a disciple of Jesus, but what kind of a disciple? He's secret. See, he was scared of the Jews. He, was, he wanted to serve Jesus, but he was worried about what people thought of him. He didn't want to use, lose his place on the Sanhedrin. He didn't want to lose his uh, place in society. So he was a disciple of Jesus. He believed in Jesus, but he did it secretly. He wouldn't come out and stand for him. He also showed a lot of courage. Well, absolutely. This is a fact where all the disciples were wrong and hiding. That's right. He was the one at least... Yeah, and that and that's actually what's really interesting about this because notice again, notice what Mark says about him. But Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, and look what it says, took courage, and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. By the way, same thing with Nicodemus. Remember in John chapter three, when does Nicodemus come to Jesus? In the middle of the night. He doesn't come in the daytime. Why does he come at night? So he can hide. hide. Doesn't want anybody to see. So he's he's okay with being a disciple of Jesus, but he wants to do it at night. You know, it's like Christians who they can come to church on Sunday and boy, are they but in but Monday and Tuesday when they're with their friends and they're with their co-workers, they act just like their friends and their co-workers. They take they say the same jokes, they laugh at the same jokes, they they use the same language. Because they're ashamed. 
They won't stand up for Jesus in the daytime. They'll stand up for Him in the night. They'll stay, stand up for Him when they're around other Christians. But they won't stand up for Him uh, when, when they're on their own. So here's two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. But here, both of them, now this is really interesting, both of them take courage, right? And, and they know what they're about to do is going to get out. Everybody's going to know it. Everybody's going to see it. And here's the interesting thing. They couldn't do it when Jesus was alive, but now He's dead. And by the way, this is what's really interesting to me. They have no, they have no expectation of reward for this. And in fact, let me ask you a question. Do they expect Jesus to rise from the dead? Joseph and Nicodemus, do they expect Him to rise from the dead? How do you know that? They prepared his body. They wrapped him in linen and put spices on him. The spice, what were the spices for, by the way? For the stink. See, back then, they didn't. Jews don't embalm. Jews don't take out all the organs and put anything back in. They basically take all these spices and they wrap you in all... 75 pounds of spices is a lot of spices. They wrap you up so that when you start to stink, they can't smell you. So, do you think they expected him to rise from the dead? Absolutely not. There was no expectation that he would rise from the dead because they wrapped him up. But yet, they still, with no expect, they're not thinking, man, this Jesus is going to come back from the dead and we're going to get all these rewards because we took courage. None of that. They just did it. I, I can imagine them saying, man, we didn't, we didn't stand up for him when he was alive. Let's at least do it now that he's dead. So, I just think it's a special kind of courage that stands up like that when they had no expectation uh, that, that he would rise from the dead. Now, I asked this question, what was behind their courage? What do you think was behind their courage? What, what, what made them take courage at this point? Uh, Love. Love? I think well, a lot of just the sovereignty of God using them. Yeah. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing you got to think of. These guys, by the way, they... They deserve to be lauded or congratulated for their courage. But i got to tell you something. What's behind their courage is the Spirit of God. It, it wasn't they just looked inside themselves and found something that had... No, by the way, they had, been, they had been cowards for a long time. Right? I mean, they had plenty of opportunities to stand up for Jesus and they didn't do it. And here it is at His death and they have no reasonable expectation of any kind of reward or anything and they find the courage. Where do they find it? Well, I believe it was the Spirit of God. Now, we don't know their thoughts and feelings, but we have to assume that God moved on their hearts to embolden them. Um, like I said, we, one thing we do know, they, they took His body in verse 40, they bound it in linens with the spices as is the burial customs of the Jews. They did not expect Him to rise in three days. If they did, they'd have said, hey, man, let's just put him in there. In three days, he's going to come out anyway. No, they wrapped him up. The Jews, by the way, as I said, they did not embalm. They don't drain the blood or, or anything like that and do anything to the body. All they do is take linen and they wrap it up and they put in all these spices and it was a fragrance designed uh, to minimize the stench of a decaying body. So we're pretty sure by what they did, they were doubtful about any resurrection. Now, here's something else about them. They're in a hurry, okay? At, at best, as we can ascertain, Jesus died about 3 o'clock, 
It, it, they have to have him in the grave by sundown. They got three hours. Okay? Look what verse 41 to 40 says. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, now look what that says. They're, they got to get him down so quickly, they don't have enough time to transport the body across the city or to some place. They basically found a tomb in the garden right there. And they put him in that tomb. Why? Because the Jewish day of preparation, they had to get it done. They were in a hurry to get it. Everybody see that? So they don't have time. So they, it's 3 o'clock. They got to go to Pilate. They got to get a meeting with him. They got to get permission to take his body down. They got to go back to the cross. They got to take the body down. They got to get the spices, get the linens, get him wrapped. Get him in the tomb, and they got to do all that in three hours. Didn't the tomb belong to Joseph? Well, we it, we don't know that from John. Okay, it was a rich man's tomb. By the way, what could have happened here is Joseph could have said, "Here's a tomb. Who's it belong to?" Guy says, "It's mine," and Joseph says, "Here, here's the money. I'll buy it from you." What we do know is they used that tomb because it was close. They're in a hurry. Okay. Joseph of Arimathea could very well, because he was a rich man, he could have bought it in order to lay. Probably had to make some arrangement. Um, but they they used that tomb because, and it says it right there, uh, because of the Jewish day of preparation. I mean, we got to get this thing done, and they get him in the uh, in the tomb. Now, again, why were they in such a hurry? Well, again, as I mentioned, Jesus dies on the cross around three in the afternoon. The Sabbath begins at sundown, so they had about three hours to get permission, get the body, prepare it for burial, get it in the tomb, or else, because once, by the way, once sundown happened, they couldn't touch a dead body. Right? The Jews cannot touch a dead body, especially on the Sabbath. So they would have basically have to leave it out in the open until the day after the Sabbath. And then, and, and they, of course, they didn't, want to, uh, they didn't want to do that. Now, that's the human reason why they did what they did. But the real reason, the spiritual reason, the prophetic reason was this. Now remember, Jesus had to be in the grave for how many days? Three days. He says, just as it was with the... Uh, look at Mark 9.31. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of His enemies. He will be killed. But three days later, He's going to rise from the dead. Okay? So He has to be in the grave three days. Everybody with me? Okay. Now, to the Jews, a day was, a, was a, a term that designated any part of a 24-hour day. So, for, if, if they had put Jesus in the tomb at 5 o'clock, okay, the next day started at 6. Everybody with me? If they put Him in at 5 o'clock, that was one day. To the Jews, any part of a day was a day. Okay? You didn't have to be in for the full... 24 hours. You just had to be in the ground for a part of it, and to the Jews that designated a day. And so for him to be in the ground for three days, he had to go in into the tomb on Friday, at least some part of Friday. And that's exactly what happened, so that Friday would count as one, as, as one of the three days. Now, again, because they're on such short of time, the action had to take place very rapidly, and it does. So here's, it's three o'clock, he dies, and I just believe the Spirit of God moves on Joseph of Arimathea 
and Nicodemus, and he gives them courage that they never had before. You know. By the way, we know in the book of Acts, Jesus said, you'll receive what? Boldness and power. When? When the Spirit of God comes on you. It's the Spirit of God that, that puts the boldness and the courage in us to stand up for Jesus in the daytime. And I just believe he did that with, with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, giving them the courage that they required. Let's look at verse 20. So they put him in the tomb. They go off. All of Saturday goes by, and it comes to Sunday, the first day of the week. So on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb early while it's still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, here's the thing. Evidently, they were in such a hurry on Friday that they didn't finish. Okay? Because look at Matthew 24. It says this, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing what? Spices. Now, why would they bring spices? But hadn't they already done that? They had. Unless they had got in such a hurry, they didn't finish the job, which is more than likely what happened. Remember, they were in such a hurry to get him in the ground um, that they probably didn't get it all done. Remember, they had 75 pounds. And so they were coming back on Monday, uh, Sunday morning, and they were going to bring in spices, so they were probably going to rewrap him or refinish, uh, refinish the uh, job. But she comes, and when she gets there, she sees the tomb. I mean, the stone's been rolled away. So she runs and goes to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, which is who? John. Which is John. And, he, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Now, does she immediately think resurrection? No. Doesn't think that at all. She says, somebody stole him. Somebody has stole the body. That's her first thinking when she looks in the tomb. Somebody stole the body. She just assumes someone's taken the body. She doesn't, again, think about a possible resurrection. She just makes an assumption that the body has been moved. So she, by the way, she loves him with all of her heart, does she not? But her faith ain't very strong. But, but her love absolutely is. Look at verses 3 through 7. So Peter went out with the other disciple. This is John. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, and Simon Peter being Simon Peter, he does what? He just, boom, just flam, he just goes right in there. He goes in the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So what they would do is they would wrap your body up, and all these spices, but then they had a face cloth which was, um, which was separate. It was a separate garment that they would use for the face. Now, I don't know if it was just covering the face, if it wrapped the face, I'm not sure, but it was a separate thing. And it's an odd thing. The linen cloths are just lying there, right? They're just in a mess. They're just off. But the face cloth, which has covered his faith, had been folded up and was, was, was put there by, in a place by itself, which is kind of an odd thing, right? Why would you fold one, not the other? Um, so John and Peter run toward the tomb. By the way, John is a young man, probably much younger, much faster than Peter, so he gets there first. Now, he hesitates. He stops at the entrance, and he looks in, which, by the way, is exactly what I would do. I just don't <laughs> run into an open grave. I'm going to stop. 
and I'm going to peek around the corner and make sure there ain't no boogers in there or anything, right? And then comes Peter, and Peter just comes being Peter, and he just runs right in. And what they see is absolutely amazing. They see the linen wrapping, which was used to uh, wrap the body, and they're just lying there. And again, the face cloth, which is used to wrap the head, folded us. Now, they instantly understand something. A, a, a grave robber, if you were going to take the body, why would you unwrap it? That makes no sense. If you were going to take the body for whatever reason, you wouldn't. If you're stealing the body, you don't stop unless unwrap it. Because all those spices, you got to deal with all that. What would you do? You just pick it up and take it, right? So number one, you wouldn't have unwrapped it. Number two, what kind of grave robber would fold it up, fold up the head cloth? Who would do that? I mean, nobody. So they immediately, in their mind, think, you know, and I'm sure Mary told the men they've stole the body. Well, they walk, they go in there immediately. The evidence says to them, nobody stole this body. They wouldn't steal a body and leave the linens. And if they did, who would fold it? Hey, let's leave this nice and neat and fold up the head cloth while we while we go. Again, they saw it, and it says they believed. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first. This is John. He also, once Peter had gone in, he went in. And look, watch what it says. And he saw and he believed. You see, they knew then what had happened. When they saw those linen cloths and that, that folded up head cloth, they knew that Jesus had come out of those clothes. And that was all they needed to see. They believed right then that he had rose from the dead, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so it tells us that they believed. Now, they didn't understand everything. Watch what it says. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. But for as yet, they did not understand the Scripture um, that he must rise from the, from the dead. Um, again, they didn't understand at this point the significance of Psalm 16, or Psalm 110, or Psalm 118, or Isaiah 53. You see what it's saying? They believed he had rose from the dead, but they didn't understand all the reasons why. They didn't understand all the fulfillment of Scripture. They didn't understand all the spiritual aspects of it. They didn't understand all the Messianic prophecies. They, they didn't just immediately understand all that. That would happen, by the way, when the Spirit of God came. On 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, uh, the Spirit's going to come. And after that, they're going to begin, He's going to open up their hearts and minds, and they're going to begin to see things and understand, oh, this is why all that happened. But for now... They just believed that he rose from the dead. They believed purely on the basis of what they saw. Again, later, they're going to understand everything when the Holy Spirit comes and makes everything clear. But at this moment, the grave clothes um, are enough. Now, evidently, Mary Magdalene had followed the disciples back to the tomb, which would be natural. And it says this in verses 11 through 13, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. By the way, Peter and John, as soon as they, if, if you go back and look at it, as soon as they figured it all out, what did they do? They took off. Poor old Mary. They, they, real, they real cognizant of, of, of people's feelings, ain't they? You know, they just leave Mary standing there and they all run back to their house. They, you know, worry about her later. So she's standing outside the tomb and, and as she's weeping and crying, she decides, okay, I'm going to look, look in the tomb. And evidently you had to stoop down in some way. There was a smaller opening. You had to stoop to look in. And she looks in, and she sees something that, by the way, they were just there. They didn't see it. 
right? Peter and John were just in the tomb. They didn't get to see this. She looks in and she sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, look, watch this. One at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? And she said again, Man, they, they stole him. She still has no idea what's going on. They, they took him away. I don't know where they've taken him. Right? Now, this is really interesting. One thing... Yeah, absolutely. Um, something I must have missed, I don't know, but what happened to the guards that was assigned to guard Well, you're, if you go back and read the other Gospels, the Bible says when the angels came, the, the guards what? They, first, they, I think they just fell backwards, didn't they? And then they fled, and they actually went to the Jews and told the Jews what had happened. And man, these angels came. So by that time, the guards are gone. Yeah, the guards are gone. Well, and, and by the way, John, keep in mind, John, he tells you what he wants to tell you. He ain't worried about that. The, the other Gospels will fill in the other pieces of the story. John's not worried about that at all. John picks certain things to glorify Jesus. He doesn't care about the guards. To him, that's a, that's a side note. Let the other... By the way, more than likely, John's was the last Gospel written. So by the time he wrote his Gospel... The Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already floating around. He knew those other aspects had already been told. He's not interested in that at all. He's not interested in telling you something somebody else has already told you. He's going to focus in. I was an eyewitness. I was there. This is what I saw. So he really focuses in on something that he wants you to know. Uh, Go back to John 16 for a minute. Remember what Jesus said. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament or mourn but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy when a woman is giving birth she's sorrow because her hour has come but when she's delivered the baby she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born in the world so also you will have sorrow now but I will see you again and when I do your hearts will rejoice and nobody will ever take your joy from you now this he, he, he talked about this weeks or months or even years earlier, but this is that day. She's standing there weeping, right? Her, she's sorrowful. She's mourning. She feels as worse as she ever has. But her joy, her weeping is just about to be turned into, into joy. And by the way, it's a joy that can never be taken away from her. Now, I want to point out something else. This is really interesting. I ran across this. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, John points that out. They weren't, he, she, he could have just said she saw two angels, and that would have been like, that's pretty cool. But he goes one more detail. One sat at the head and one sat at the foot of where Jesus was. Now, do you think there's any significance to that, that one was at the head and the other was at the foot? He, he goes to trouble to point it out. Any ideas why he would do that? I mean, I had no clue. Stand up, Debbie. Tell them what you just said. What now? Yeah. The, the two, what are they called? Cherubs? Cherubs. Cherubs sit on the ark that way. One at the head, one at the foot. That's exactly right. That girl's been learning, hasn't she? That is awesome. In Exodus 25, God instructs the people of Israel to build an ark of the covenant which resides in the Holy of Holies. And on top of the ark of the covenant, it had what was called the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would go in the Holy of Holies 
and take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. That was where God met man and forgave the sins of Israel. Listen to God's instructions. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim or angels of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on two ends of the mercy seat. Make one angel on one end and one angel on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the angels on its two ends. And so when that priest once a year went in the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was, there was a mercy seat. On one end of the mercy seat was an angel and on the other end of the mercy seat was an angel. And that's where God met man. In the Old Testament, God met man between two angels on the mercy seat, but now Mary looks in the tomb and she sees a new mercy seat with an angel. Ain't that cool? She sees a new mercy seat with an angel on either end. But on this mercy seat, there's no further need for the sacrifice of angels, um, sacrifice of animals, or the sprinkling of blood. Jesus has once and for all accomplished the sacrifice. Basically, as she looks in and says, this is the new mercy seat. You want forgiveness of sins? You come to Jesus. No more animal sacrifices. No more going in the Holy of Holies. None of that. It's all about, it's all about Jesus. So I thought that was uh, pretty cool. Good job, Debbie. You can teach. Um, you you'll be teaching next Sunday. All right. No Just go way. ahead and put that down on your calendar. No Later on, the writer of Hebrews will say this. So Christ has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands, as is not part of the created world, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all, and and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal Spirit, Christ offered Himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He is the new mercy seat. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know who it was. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. Why didn't she recognize him? Okay, he, in some way, and we don't know why this is. I've heard people say, Well, you know, she just, she, she, mentally, she didn't expect it to be Jesus, right? Because she thinks he's gone. She turns around and there he is, but I just don't buy that. I mean, if you know somebody as well as she does, you're going to recognize him. If it, if it, if, but there's something about his resurrected body. Um, I think there was something about him that made it just impossible for her to recognize him apart from him telling her. He's in a, a glorified body. By the way, it's still a body. Uh, later on, he will eat fish and honeycomb on the shore. He still eats, but it's also a body that can pass through walls. Because later on, we'll see, I don't know if it's in John, but next week when, when the, the disciples are all in the room and they're all scared, he just walks right in. Just, just walks through the wall. Comes right in. So he's in some kind of a new body. Um, now what exactly was different, we don't know. But it was different enough that she couldn't recognize him. Uh, until, by the way, he spoke her name. And Jesus said to her, Mary... And immediately she turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So when he said her name, immediately she said, that's him. By the way, Jesus said earlier, my sheep, what? 
They know my voice. My sheep know my voice. Um, Jesus said to her, Mary, don't cling to me. Now, <laughs> Mary, by the way, this is the Mary who washed his... What did she do? What did she do? She washed his feet and dried it with her hair. So this is a clingy, touchy woman, right? So I'm sure when she sees him, can you imagine what she did? I mean, she probably just jumped up all. She's holding on to him as hard as she can. She, in her mind, you're not going anywhere, Jesus. I'm never letting you go. Okay? I got you, and you're not going anywhere. And he says this to her. He says, Mary, don't cling to me. Now, now, the, the, if you read the old, if you read the King James Version, it says, don't touch me. But that's a bad translation. The Greek literally means, don't cling to me so tightly. He's not telling her, don't touch me. He's saying, don't cling to me so tightly. Um, and why? He says, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, Mary, and you'll see this in a second, Mary, I'm, I'm, about, I'm going to leave. Don't, it, this isn't a physical thing anymore. This isn't about uh, me walking with you throughout this earth anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave, and by the way, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm not just going to be with you anymore. I'm going to be in you. So he's saying, don't cling to me in the physical I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so she went and told the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. First of all, again, just to mention, He's saying don't cling to me. He's saying, Mary, it's not going to be like it was. You know, It's not going to be like me here in a physical body and us communing. It won't be that way anymore. I'm going to go to the Father. When I go to the Father, I'll send the Spirit, and at that point, I'll not just be with you like I am physically today. I'm going to be in you. Secondly, and this is really interesting, he said, go to my brothers. Did you know this is the first time that he ever calls them brothers? He's called them disciples. He's even called them friends, but he has never before now, and he says, go to my brothers. Um, see, his death and resurrection changed everything, even our relationship to him. Before he was resurrected, he could call us friends, and he still can, but today, because he rose from the dead, and we're going to rise, we're all part of the same race, part of the same family, the same DNA, now we're, we're brothers. Listen to Hebrews, and we'll close here. Jesus, because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everybody. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, that's us, and it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader or a perfect big brother, fit to bring us into salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he made holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. Because he rose from the dead, now we can rise from the dead. Now our Father, we, his Father and our Father, we can call God our Father, that makes us brothers and sisters with him and that's the first time after his resurrection that he calls them brothers listen if we put our faith in Jesus Christ and because of his death and resurrection we can now be called his brothers and sisters children of God but more than that we also know that we too shall live that death no longer has any hold on us let's pray father we thank you for John 19 and 20 thank you